Hi, and welcome to Measure the Metric, a podcast about engineering monuments, the people who built them, and the people who use them. My name is Vivian Yu. And my name is John Julius. I'm a civil engineer. I'm married to a civil engineer. Every episode, we're going to pick one engineering monument. Maybe it's ancient, or maybe it's brand new, from somewhere in the world. Oh, actually, though, not every episode. (laughs) So we're going to tell you what it is, where it is, who built it, when it was built, why it was built... We're going to give you so much information, but in keeping with our recent breaks from Formula, this week is our first episode that is not centered on something in the world. That's right. We're going interstellar. Yeah. Well, no. That, wait, hold on. No. Is that the right word for it? No, we're just going a little bit beyond, you know, <laughs> the oxygen layer of planet Earth. But The yeah, atmosphere, the- you mean? Well, yeah, but it's still in the atmosphere. It's just not, it's in like, I think it's the, it's above the stratosphere. I don't know. We're doing, it's within the gravitational pull of (laughs) Earth. This is a really bad. It's brilliant. (laughs) Description. It's a brilliant description. We just got too technical with it. And who's the technical person here? This monument is not going to be grounded. Yeah, exactly. Before we actually jump into it, I do want to make one correction. I've been waiting for this for for a year, by the way, for (laughs) someone to just correct me on things because Lord knows I've probably made a few boo-boos. So thank you so much. At the Great Zimbabwe episode, I mentioned that the site is 80 hectares and that translates to 800,000 square meters, not 800,000 square kilometers. That would be bananas. So very sorry about that. I even looked at my notes. It said the wrong thing. So Great Zimbabwe, 80 hectares, 800,000 square meters. Thank you so much to, I think, one of my colleagues who listened to it and said, that's not right. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to name you by name, but we know your name and we appreciate the call out. Yes, thank you. So right, back to this episode. Today we're talking about Earth observation satellites, and very specifically, a set of Canadian satellites called the radar set. Yeah, I don't know if you know this about us, but Vivian and I are both Canadian citizens. (laughs) (laughs) It's come up maybe once or twice throughout this podcast. That's right. We do live in Canada, and we're doing a space episode. That's right. So very exciting. We got to feature a project that the Canadian Space Agency, the CSA, is currently working on. So this is the Radar Set Constellation mission. And I'm going to go into more description of what this set of satellites do and a little bit about how it's being used, when it was launched. But For the most part, I'm not an aerospace engineer. I'm not even a mechanical engineer. I'm a civil engineer. And that is everything to do with concrete. And the last thing you need in space is concrete. Yes, now Vivian, why is that? Pray tell. Why am I not a mechanical engineer? No, 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 no. Why is concrete no good in space? Because it's heavy. But it doesn't matter if it's heavy in space. (laughs) But you got to get it up there. Uh, yeah, I guess so. It doesn't do anything. Yeah. It doesn't flex. 
That's fair. I would have imagined that a concrete would actually be very good in space because, well, no, because it's so full of bubbles. It's so porous, right? And then in a vacuum, all those pores would expand. No, forget it. <laughs> I don't even know. I... <laughs> so neither is John a mechanical engineer or aerospace engineer. Having had that complete disclaimer of how unqualified we are to talk about the technical details of this mission, we were very fortunate to actually be able to interview the senior systems engineer at the CSA, Jean-Vierre Oud. So at the end of this episode, you're going to hear an interview with her where I ask a bunch of questions about how things work, how things were built. And it was just such a pleasure to basically talk to an astronaut. That was so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was pretty interesting. It's It's really nice, actually, just to be able to you know, highlight someone. I feel like Canada, specifically when it comes to the space agency, we're sort of like, people don't even always know that Canada has space operations because NASA was such a huge, you know, such a huge monolith. Yeah, between the US and Russia, that's where you hear the most about space history and space exploration. But as Canadians, we're actually very proud of the things that we've launched into space. We're very proud of the Canadarm, which, by the way, my colleagues who were not Canadian, when they first learned about the Canadarm, thought that was the silliest name. They did not believe that it was real. And this is an attachment, an arm that is connected to the International Space Station, which is incredibly useful because this arm lets them do things that an arm or basically a hand can do. can do, yeah. It's how they repair the exterior of the International Space Station. Yeah. It's incredibly dexterous. It was a very incredible piece of engineering. And I mean, originally I did want to do an episode on that, but the CSA convinced me to do a feature on this constellation mission of their satellites. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Probably later, later on, we're going to do another episode about the Canadarm when I feel a little bit more qualified. Yeah. It'll be interesting, yeah, because, I mean, we've got, that's that's a lot of robotics, that's a lot of, like, zero-gravity stuff. It's it's wild. Yeah. So, sometimes people ask me, actually, most recently, my mother asked me, what's the difference between the different types of engineering? She said, what is the civil, and what is it that mechanical do, and what is it that, yeah, basically, the main difference between mechanical and civil. And I basically told her, if it moves, it's not civil. <laughs> Right. If it can perceptibly move, <laughs> I don't deal with it. Yeah. Can't deal with things that move. Yeah. It's it's funny. So so obviously we've been working from home a lot, right? And so listening to some of Vivian's calls, I've heard a lot of words, concrete, asphalt, ditch. <laughs> yeah. S substrate. All of all of these things and and nothing, you know. No wheel. No, why would... No, I don't know. I'm just saying. Sometimes I talk about the wheel if I'm building a road. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I just found it, yeah, very... <laughs> I hear one side of these conversations and it's always just like... Can I fix it with concrete? Yeah. No? Not my problem then. <laughs> anyway, we've gone way off track. So, today we're talking about the Radar Sets Constellation mission. 
Let's go back to basics. What is a satellite? Ooh. So a satellite is something that is in orbit in space. That is the definition of a satellite. So it can be artificial. It could be things that we've launched to orbit the Earth or another planet in space. It could be a natural thing that orbits the Earth. So like the moon, for example, is a satellite. Yeah. So that is what a satellite is. The next thing we want to define is what is a satellite constellation? Ooh, okay. So this is something that I was not aware of and I still am not aware of. So a satellite constellation, if you can imagine what a constellation is being a grouping basically of stars to make a pattern, a satellite constellation would be a series or a system of satellites that work together. Okay. So imagine that one satellite is one maybe camera or one radar or one thing that orbits around the Earth. At any given time, it's above one spot of the Earth. It has a coverage of one side of the Earth. An entire side of the Earth. Well, a a specific area of the Earth, right? Like you can't see the moon all day. No. Because the moon is only above you at certain times of the day. Yeah. A Typically, series. certain times of the night. Typically, usually. I'm, I'm feeling pedantic today. But not always. No, when sometimes you see it. In the when day. it's not a full yeah. moon, it's because it's on the other side. Yeah. So a series of satellites or a satellite constellation would be multiple satellites that orbit kind of at interval from each other so that you get a fuller coverage of the Earth. At any given time. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So imagine if you had three moons that were spaced out, constantly orbiting the Earth, you would always be able to see at least a moon. Yeah, if they were spaced properly. Exactly. I'm guessing is where the engineering comes in. That's right. So a satellite constellation would be artificial satellites that we've launched, specifically designed to orbit the Earth at a distance from each other so that we can get coverage at any given time. Hmm. Okay. And so this is the RadarSat Constellation mission from the CSA. And it's primarily used for taking synthetic aperture radar images. And I'm going to go more into that because I went on a deep dive on what the heck this is. <laughs> But basically, satellite constellation, what do we use them for? So, John, you could probably have a few ideas of what we use satellites for. So we use satellites for things like, oh, tracking, like, activity of general sorts. I've heard of people using satellites to track, like, fish populations. Mm -hmm. Obviously, climate change is something we're we're utilizing satellites to, to keep, you know, track of different things because you can outfit a satellite with different it's like satellites aren't just visual so they can be tracking you know things like carbon dioxide or or whatever i imagine that we also use satellites just for straight photo surveillance yeah i mean those are those are some very technical uses of satellites but even on a more maybe fundamental day-to-day level your gps yeah is using satellites, communications, internet, a lot of military communication also happens via satellite. 
broadcasting by radio or television for the most part happens by satellite now. Ooh. Broadband internet yep. is via satellite. And so all the things that you listed about surveillance of the earth, basically carbon dioxide level, fish populations, things like that, those are called earth observation satellites. Right. And so this is part of what the radar set constellation mission or the RCM is built for oh. is Earth observation. Beautiful. So the radar sat is a fleet of three satellites, and they monitor the air, the land, and the sea of Canada. Okay. It was launched in June 2019. Oh, recent. Very recent. Yeah. It became fully operational in November 2019. Beautiful. It was launched from a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Oh, okay. From the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Yeah, that's cool. I don't have strong feelings about Elon Musk, so... Uh, yeah, I feel like Elon Musk has enough strong feelings for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I will say SpaceX, it's, it's definitely a very interesting mission. So the RCM, the satellites are fitted with C-band data... Okay. And it's basically a frequency band for telecommunications. It was really the first frequency band for commercial telecommunication. And most of your television receivers, for example, use C-band data. Right. That's just a very technical information. I don't know if anybody's interested. So I feel like the amount of like bandwidth and and frequency talk that we did in the CN Tower episode <laughs> is like anyone who listens to the CN Tower episode and is still listening to this episode <laughs> is going to be like, C-band, all right. <laughs> Researching this episode was really hard because I had no fundamentals to this you know like when you're looking at wikipedia i had to click on every single thing i was like i don't know what this is <laughs> control click control click <laughs> <laughs> so anyway c-band data is used in television receivers yes it can also be used for emergency communication during a natural disaster okay it allows for communication to reach remote places and we can forecast the weather with it so part of why this is important for these satellites is because one of the features of its Earth observation capability is to be able to monitor natural disasters, to predict when they're coming, to predict how they're going to move. So for example, if we've got a wildfire in northern Alberta, how much is it going to spread? How well can we communicate to the remote communities that are at risk? to let them know that you should really get out of the way. And yeah, just to predict, even if ground temperatures start heating up without having a fire present, that we can predict what might happen. Yeah, that's super, super cool. Although I do have to say that the idea of a satellite monitoring the area around your house and then communicating to your TV to tell you to get out of there. <laughs> that's not... That's, no, that's not how functionally it works. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I, am not, I am not a conspiracy guy, but 
I have a lot of sympathy for conspiracy oh people. God. I have a lot of empathy for conspiracy people because I do. <laughs> yeah. So that's anyhow, not how this works. Functionally, okay. that's not how this works. Okay. So to use the RCM and the features of the RCM, typically it would be maybe a fire marshal or a park warden or someone who typically would be monitoring these situations. Right. People who are natural disaster planners, emergency first responders. Yeah. People like that who would be monitoring what might come up, and therefore they would be alerted by the RCM through their internal communications that this is something you should be aware of, and so then they can communicate to the the communities what to do. (laughs) (laughs) The satellite's not going to show up on your TV to tell you to get out of the house. (laughs) Okay. 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 Wow. So that's one conspiracy theory (laughs) put to bed. So the RCM takes images, but it doesn't take traditional optical images. It takes synthetic aperture radar. And what this is, is it basically sends a radar, so like a parcel of information, and depending on how it reflects back, (laughs) then the satellite can process that information based on probably how fast it comes back okay. I, I don't know exactly how it works but it's it's the feeding back of information yeah and in that sense it can create a 2d or a 3d reconstruction of things like landscape yeah it can predict or it can obtain information on for example the water saturation of soil hmm. so how moist or how much water is there in the soil yeah as if the beam comes back and it's wet. And you know, there's <laughs> moisture in the soil. That's not funny. Don't laugh at that. And the really cool thing about this is because it's not a traditional optical image. It's a laser that shoots down into the earth and bounces back. It doesn't matter if there's cloud cover. It doesn't matter if there are obstructions. Hmm. It's not affected by weather patterns. So that's very cool. Yeah, that's great. So with the three satellites, it can access 95% of any point on the globe on an average day. Huh. Pretty neat. Yeah. This was built by 300 people across 50 companies from across Canada. Yeah. The 125 suppliers from seven provinces. So, you know, all you other provinces that didn't contribute, you know. (laughs) Yeah, you guys are on watch. (laughs) Got our eyes on you next time. So each of the satellites, I've got some stats because in my head, I don't have a great idea of what it looks like. Like in my head, a satellite still looks like Sputnik and I'm not entirely sure if it does. Yeah, it has like the solar panels and all that. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that every satellite looks different because they all have different purposes, but so each of these satellites are 3.6 meters high. Okay. About a meter wide yeah. so and just under two meters deep. Just about sounds like Sputnik. Sounds like Sputnik. They each weigh 1,430 kilograms. Okay. Sputnik. A, the approximate weight of a black rhino. So if you know how heavy a black rhino is, it's like sending a rhino in space. 
pretty good. Which, by the way, is actually half the weight of satellites that sent before it. So this was a great improvement in that we've cut the weight of our satellites in half. Right, there you go. So we used to have to send two rhinos in space. Yeah. And now we're sending out one rhino three times. Yeah. Wait. Because it's an array. Yeah. It's a constellation. Well, it's three rhinos, really. Yeah. But we get three times. The... Anyway. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. No, you're right. There's three rhinos in space. Yeah. We launched them up. And that's going to be the name of our episode. Yeah. Three rhinos in space. Three rhinos in space. I also, I just like the idea. I have this image of, like, Vivian. She gets a number, and then she just, like, goes into to Google, and it's just, like, something that weighs 1,360, <laughs> right? And, and then... She just like looks and it's just like, yeah. And then she scrolls down on page 10. Black rhinoceros weighs an average of it, right? <laughs> I'm just like, how do you find these comparisons? I, I don't know, but I feel like you need a comparison. Otherwise, 1,430 kilograms is not going to mean anything to you. Well, unless you're like measuring metric, <laughs> right? Well, anyway, <laughs> so now you know average size of a black rhino. Each of the satellites also have a lifespan of about seven years. Okay. And it's pretty important because the satellites are designed to basically self-destruct once they are past their working life. Mm -hmm. So they will be decommissioned themselves and then burn up in the atmosphere within 25 years. And this is really important because we've sent a lot of junk into space we really don't want to send more trash and have that trash just like orbit around the earth. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we can have it basically either destruct or recycle itself. Right. Each satellite is evenly spaced in the same orbit around the globe, separated by about 32 minutes. Okay. It circles the globe every 96 minutes. So it's going pretty fast. Yeah. It orbits at about 600 kilometers above the Earth. And I did ask Jean-Vierre during the interview if we can see them. And we actually can't. They're well, so far up. They're so far up and they're also quite small. Well, but I always thought you could see satellites in space. You can see, like, no. Have you ever seen, like, the space station? Yeah, yeah, I've seen the space the ISS station. is a tiny little dot. And that's a whole lot bigger than... Well, anyway. Yeah. So you cannot see it in space, but it it's up there. They're up there. Yeah. So how do we use this, right? So there are three main purposes for the RCM. One is for maritime surveillance. So you might not know this, but Canada has a lot of water around it. Uh -huh. It's basically surrounded by water on all three sides, except yeah. for the states except on the, the states. south. Yeah. And especially the Arctic region is very remote. There's a lot of changes happening up there because of climate change. And it's it's important to monitor how that's developing. There's also a lot of potential about a Northwest Passage because the polar ice caps are melting and it's really opening up the channels within the Arctic. So one of the things that these RCMs are, are designed to do is to surveillance the ice, the wind, any potential pollution or spills that happen, any ships that do want to go through the Arctic and allow them to actually plan out their route ahead of time. They can see 
what the ice condition is ahead of them. They can see what the weather is doing ahead of them. Hmm. Pretty cool. We also have mines in the northern region, and this allows them to stay open because they can have that transport channel open. Yeah. It's also a bit for the security of our northern region. Yeah, this is something that I I don't know a whole lot about, but basically there's, yes, there's a lot of kind of concern over... It's the commercial interest and the political interest in our northern region. Yeah. So it's very much about the security of Canada and making sure that we we maintain our autonomy in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's I'm so used to looking at like a flat map, right? That's and right. everything just goes like east to west. But when you look at like a round map and you look at the North Pole, right? You've got Canada, Russia, you've got Finland, like you've got all of these countries that are kind of equally close, right? That's right. So, yeah, so how do you how do you manage that? Yes, and we also have quite a lot of Indigenous communities in our northern area. So the RCM helps ships navigate through the Arctic to deliver food and supplies to our northern communities because, you know, if, if any of you have read or watched the miniseries of The Terror which is based on a true story, you know, that navigating through the Arctic is real frightening. <laughs> yeah, loosely based. Yeah. The the Terror and the Erebus were ships that did truly get real stranded. <laughs> Beyond that, Dan Simmons and AMC took some, <laughs> took some liberties. But also, if you haven't, I haven't, I haven't watched the miniseries yet, but I did very much enjoy the book, The yes. Terror by Dan Simmons. Anyhow. So that's one of the functions of the RCM. The other one is in disaster management. So I've already talked a little bit about this, but it allows the government and for first responders to get warnings of any impending disasters, natural disasters. It lets them put a response plan together. So the satellite imagery can penetrate through thick rain or smoke. Uh, which is really important uh, yes. for fires or for extreme weather patterns. For example, in 2017, there were major flooding that was happening in Montreal, and it would have been used if the RCM, you recall, it didn't get launched until 2019. Yeah. But the intent was that if that happens again, they would be able to monitor the rising water condition and pre-position sandbags and pumps in critical areas. Uh So that they can actually put a response plan together. Nice. So saving lives. That's right. Yeah. The third thing that the RCM is designed to do is ecosystem monitoring. So this is a number of things. We've got the permafrost starting to thaw and ground actually beginning to sink Mm -hmm. because it's losing that moisture. Right. And we also have moisture levels in soil kind of differing because of extreme weather patterns. So on one hand, we can also monitor the climate change effects in our northern regions. On the other, we can also help farmers and agricultural businesses boost their crop yield by understanding what's happening in their soil on a much larger level than what they can see from the ground. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so you are able to access satellite images from the RCM 
but you do have to make an account. And so I can actually post this online. The radar sat images are available online. You just have to register an account and it's a little bit confusing how you would actually navigate to what you want to see and when you want to see and what you want to see. Okay. But I, I played around with it and I'm sure people who are more tech savvy than me can certainly figure it out. But yeah. <laughs> people who are more tech savvy than you though may not be the target demographic for this podcast in which you explain. Okay, but look, I'm talking about a website where you need to download a file and in the zip files, there are images. Like it's, ah, it's, okay. I had a little bit of difficulty finding specifically what I'm looking for. And there are training videos on there. I didn't oh, yeah. watch through them, but there's a lot of resource on how to access the type of imagery that you're looking for to help you either understand your country better. I mean, this is specific to Canada yeah, or just to see what's happening in the environment above Canada. So, yeah, so that is the very limit of what I can tell you about these satellites. But I am very excited for you to hear this interview with Geneviève Oud. So I I know earlier I said she was an astronaut. She's not. I, I don't think she's actually been to space, but I did ask her about how she got interested in working for the space agency. And she just sounded like this real down to earth and believe in the mission. I just love space kind of <laughs> engineer. And it was just so lovely to speak to her, speak to a female engineer as well. Always really exciting. So I will let her explain more of her role and what she does at the CSA and explain how the RCM works on a much more technical level. Well, there you go. Well, I'm excited to hear this because I helped you record the interview, but I only heard one side of it. <laughs> so this uh, this should be very interesting. Buckle up. That's right. Thank you so much, Jean-Vievre. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's your role at the CSA? No problem. I'm a system engineer. I'm working for the Canadian Space Agency for, I think, about 10 years now. And I'm currently working mainly on Earth observation satellites. And uh, some people may wonder what system engineers do. So basically what we do is we follow a project on all phases from the development of the system, definition of requirements, design, manufacturing, testing, operation. And we make sure that all, I guess, the puzzle of those big complex machines, they, they all fit together. And at the end of the day, they really meet the needs of why we build them. <laughs> because that's basically what the system engineer is supposed to do. Okay, very much an integrator role. Yeah, exactly. We're not the expert in anything, but we are supposed to communicate and make sure that all the specification of the interface, when we like we assemble them together, they really fit together and they work together, basically. Very cool. Very cool. And how did you become interested in this and how did you get into this field? I would say probably my curiosity brought me here. I never dreamed about space. Look, when I was, I didn't even know about engineering until I was in CEGEP college. Mm -hmm. And it's because of my cousin was just starting engineering, talked to me about it. So I said, oh, like, that looks pretty cool. So I decided to register in mechanical engineering. 
and during mechanical engineering, I had a robotic class. I said, oh, that's even, even cooler. So I decided to apply for a master in robotics. And when I graduated, one of my first job was to work on the simulator of the Canada Arm 2. And that's oh, wow. Canada are the robots on the space station, the coolest robots on Earth. And this is when I started to get interested in to space. And after that, I got a job at the Canadian Space Agency. And after a few years, they offered me a job on the RCM project, the Radarsat Constellation Mission Project, as a system engineer specialized in software. So again, back then, I didn't know much about satellites, but I said, ah, why not? It's baby step. Every time I, I learn and I learn it. I learn every day. I think even today, after 10 years, I, I'm still learning. And that's what, that's what I like <laughs> with space engineering. That's amazing. That's very cool. Okay, so you are working on the RCM now. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's different from previous satellites that Canada has launched? So RCM is a constellation of three satellites. So the previous Canadian Earth observation satellites, the big mission, the smaller mission, we were always launching single satellites. So more satellites means more opportunities to image the same area on the ground. So what RCM really offers is like a very good coverage of the entire world and uh, most importantly, the Canadian territory. And on top of that, RCM has a radar payload that allows to image the ground, but it also has another payload, which is called automatic identification system. And basically what it does it allows to detect the ships on the ground. And if you combine the ship detector plus the radar, it allows the National Defense Department to detect and track those vessels of interest. Not all of them of, of interest, but the, some of them are. So that's, that's what it does. Okay. Different from the other satellite. I'm really interested in how the components of this mission came together. So can you talk about what various engineering teams do you have to integrate and work with? To build an RCM satellite, it takes hundreds, hundreds of people. So obviously there are a lot of engineers uh, that work on the project from the very, very beginning, mechanical engineering, electrical engineer, computer engineers, and they all get the help of experts. And those expert, expert matter are sometimes engineers, sometimes scientists, and they are experts in thermal, radiation, structure, power, software, radar, like wow. tons of them. And during the construction and testing, there's a lot of technicians and professionals who are really, really specialized in space system and the very specific tasks we're going to ask them to do. So they are the one really building the satellite. But we also need the help of those end users. So we build a satellite to take images for someone, right? Someone who wants to monitor detect ship, monitor the soil moisture, the crops, the forest. Right. So we really work with them. And obviously to make everything together, we need project managers, finance, procurement, communication. So a huge team and it's a big teamwork to make it happen. And about how long did it take? About 15 years for wow. RCM, but sometimes it takes less time. It, it all depends on like you also tied to like the politics there. That's why policy people are there with you to make sure you progress through the, the project. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I was reading a little bit about the RCM and how it works. And it noted something called the synthetic aperture radar. 
Can you talk about what this is and how it's different from traditional optical imagery? Yeah, for sure. So optical imagery requires light to see the image. So I would say like on your cell phone camera, when there's not enough light, the flash turns on. Right. For radar, the good thing is you don't need light and it doesn't care if there is cloud, so it, which is perfect for Earth observation instrument. So what it does is the radar will send the signal to the ground with very specific parameters. And that signal will reach the, the ground, bounce back to the satellite, be collected, and then you can process it. So depending which surface it bounces on, so whether it's, I don't know, ice, snow, lake, wet or dry land, forest, or a building or a ship, the signal that will be returned to the spacecraft, what we call the echo signal, will be different. And it's by comparing those two signals through like processing system that uh, we'll be able to measure whatever we need to measure, either the level of moisture, the movement of the iceberg, the location of the ships, or et cetera, I guess. Okay. That's, that's very cool. So it's less like an eye where an optical, you see the image, but it's more detecting the surface of, of what material it is, I suppose? Depending on which radar it is and which radar signal, it will more or less go deep in the, on the ground. So yeah, some signal may, may just hit the surface. Some others may, may go a little bit deeper. So with that, you'll be able to know what type of ground. Like you cannot detect if it's a different material, but it, it can obviously detect if it's dirt or if it's ice or if it's okay. snow, for example. Yeah. Okay, very cool. I also read that the radar has an active sensor that provides its own energy source. How does that work? Where does that come from? So this is similar to what I just explained. So on on the satellite, you do have the signal, the radar signal will be generated from the satellite. So it generates from its own power source. On the solar panel, we'll give power to the battery, we'll give power so, so that the system can generate its own radar signal, send it to the ground, and get it back. So this is what it means. It generates its own energy source. It doesn't need a, a third party like the sun or someone else, like another system or another component to make it work. Wow. Okay. That's very cool. Is that new? Is that specific to the RCM? No, it's, it's used in Canada and in many other countries in the world. So they're used in Europe and Japan. So uh, it's a well-known technique. And back then, I just don't know when exactly it was used on planes. So they would put it on the planes and then they would be able to monitor the ground. Okay. Uh, okay. I see that there's a lot of ways that the RCM can benefit how Canadians understand our environment and what's happening physically with the country. But does this contribute to a knowledge about space or kind of what's beyond Earth? Well, as you mentioned, RCM is really meant to better understand the, our environment. However, what I can say is that the radar technology itself could really be used for other planet exploration. So right now, the Canadian Space Agency, we are engaging with NASA, trying to learn more about a potential Mars ice mapper mission. So it's basically a mission around Mars with a radar exactly similar to what's on RCM to better assess what's the ice coverage around Mars and also where we could find the best areas for human exploration. So that technology could really be reused for planet exploration. Okay, 
That's very cool. Well, that's much easier than sending people, I suppose, to survey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's quicker. <laughs> okay. Is there any concerns about the privacy, considering that we're, it's, it's basically monitoring Canada like 24-7, right? Is there any concerns about privacy of Canadians? And are there conspiracies that we could probably, you know, put to rest in terms of this? Yeah, I think the RCM, the reader, obviously doesn't give enough information, like to say, for example, track someone down. Like it's not meant for that at all. And the resolution is very large. So, however, for any Canadian Earth observation satellite, we're all subject to some regulation, Canadian regulations. And those regulations are there to protect the information and protect our national security and protect our privacy. So that's why all the data that comes out of RCM needs to be protected. Some of them can be free and open, but some of them needs to be protected. Okay, that's good. And in terms of how the RCM was constructed, obviously it would need to be durable enough to survive the launch and get into space. And then there's a, a, a specific kind of lifespan. And I know that it is programmed as well to kind of either self-destruct or, or recycle itself so that we're not adding more junk around orbit. <laughs> what went into the consideration of how to build this? You know, how do you build something in zero gravity? How does that work? Yeah, I think, as you just mentioned, the, the most complex part is really the launch. So it's a lot of vibration that you, you force the system to handle. And then once you're on orbit, depending on the satellite, but RCM did have that, you do have deployment mechanism. Make sure you deploy the solar panel, deploy the star antenna. So this gives it also a big, big shock. So you need to make sure whatever you design needs to survive that big shock. And after that, when it's in operation, it always continuously sees extreme cold and hot temperature. So mm. you need to make sure the material you use combined with whatever thermal system you decide to have to make sure that all the electronics inside, you need to stay safe because obviously... That all computers can work from minus 100 degree to 100 degree C, right? So that's why you need to keep it uh, safe. And in space as well, you're continuously bombarded by radiation. So the structure will kind of act as a shielding. But when you select your material, when you do the soldering drawing, the way you, you assemble everything, you need to always keep all that in mind. And I think, as you mentioned, like satellite it's not like your car you cannot just bring it to the garage when it's broken <laughs> and so if you want it to last for seven years or 10 years you need to make sure you design it accordingly so it will last that many years okay right that makes sense so is there any way of repairing damages for example if you're using the canadarm is there any way that we can somehow get to it if there's a problem yeah but for rcm specifically no there's there's no way to go there and let's say refuel it or repair it physically. However, what we do is the RCM do have the capability to have its software being uploaded. So if you want a, an upgrade, so you could see that if something is broken, you could if you could fix it by software, then you may have a chance to kind of repair it. So let's say something is no longer functioning, you could think of like enhancing the control system so it no longer needs that extra components. Right. But uh, you can only fix it through software. <laughs> That's the okay. only way we can get to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And are they visible 
from Earth? Can we look up at night and see them? So RCM is at 600 kilometers, so it's pretty far, and it's not that big. So it doesn't have huge solar panel or solar antenna, which could reflect the sun. So uh, unfortunately, we cannot see it. So the satellite that we can see from the ground from time to time is the International Space Station, which is only at 300K, but it has so big solar panels that reflect the sun that you, you can see it, but that's pretty much it. Like the other satellites usually at 600, 800 kilometers. So they're way too far to be able to see it with, with your eyes. Oh, okay. Okay. And what's next for the CSA? What are some upcoming projects that you can tell us about? I guess on the space exploration side, uh, you probably saw it on the newspaper looking into Canada Arm 3, but on the, what I'm working on is the, on the Earth observation side, we know we just launched RCM, so I just told you the space project takes a long time. So that's why we need to plan for the, for the next step. So we know Canada is a huge country yeah, and there's a lot of challenges with climate change. We need to make sure we keep producing food for the Canadian and for the world where we have modernizing infrastructure and also the national security. So with all those challenges, people came to realize that really satellites is a good way to contributing to addressing those problems and trying to provide solutions. So that's why we're looking into the future, the future of mm-hmm. Earth observation satellites. But also, I, I also, on a more concrete side, I do have colleagues right now who are working on the mission. It's a smaller mission. It's called a Wildfire Sat mission. It's a Canadian mission, and it will help monitor and manage the wildfire throughout Canada. And as oh, wow. we know, we saw it last summer. I guess there's a lot of fires always happening more and more often. So it's a good mission that will really help people manage those fires. Okay. That's very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm really excited to learn about the RCM kind of to see how much more it can do because it's still pretty new. So it's got a pretty good life ahead of it. And it's, it's really exciting to see that Canada has built this really cool thing and thrown it up to space. It's definitely not super visible to the public, but I think it's really cool to know about. I guess we'll end on a fun question. What's your favorite constellation and maybe why? <laughs> I think I would be honest and I don't have a favorite constellation. However, I'm a camping fan and I, since I was very young, I always like enjoying watching the sky at night and keeping my child vision and keeping impressed by how big it is and how infinite it is. Yeah. And even my mom always in August, she would uh, keep us awake late at night to watch the Perseids show that is happening every August. So I don't have a favorite constellation. <laughs> <laughs> Just space. <laughs> so RCM would be my constellation, my satellite constellation. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a very good answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sticking with us. I know there was a lot of banter on this episode. Sometimes I get feedback that the banter is great. Sometimes I get feedback that they people just want information and less banter. Oh, I was not aware of that. Yeah, yeah. It's one of our good, good friends that actually gave us that feedback, by the way. Oh. (laughs) So I don't know what that says about our friendship. Anyway. That is hurtful. So tell us what you think. 
banter, yes or no, pro banter, anti banter. Yeah. Drop us a line on any of our social media presence accounts, whatever. Facebook at Measured in Metric. Instagram at Measured, measured in Metric. And oh, the website. Measuredinmetric.com. Measuredinmetric.com. Or even just throw it into a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us uh, yes. on. Just five star, love the banter. Yeah. Or five stars, a little too much banter. Either way. Either way, five stars. Five stars guarantees that we're going to read your review. <laughs> I feel like an Uber driver now yeah. you know, when you're getting out. Five stars? Five, five stars? Star, five stars, yes. Thank you so much. Please. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a lot of fun recording this episode. Thanks, as always, to Astronomic Audio for sound engineering and audio design. And, I mean, just general guidance. That's right. Yes. It it is very lovely. If you're thinking of starting up your own podcast, believe me, you probably know as much about it as we did when we started ours. And here we are with, uh, well, I mean, it sounds good. Well, so if you've ever listened to our podcast and thought, dang, that actually sounds really professional. Let me tell you, we are sitting in our pajamas right now in bed recording this. And the only reason why it sounds good is because of Alex. Yes. So thank you so much, Alex, for making this sound great. And yeah, really chuffed to have you on the team. And, as always, Measure and Metric. <laughs> <laughs>